Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the story of how and why rock and roll happened with Ed Ward and Nate Wilcox. It's time to let it roll. Today, Ed Ward and I will be filling in a gap in our discussion of his epic History of Rock and Roll Part 1, 1920 to 1963, with a discussion of the foundation of commercial country music and its first superstars, Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family. As always, you can access our YouTube playlist and learn more about the episodes on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. This week, Ed and I talk about the 1927 Bristol, Virginia sessions, where A&R Man Supreme Ralph Peer discovered both Rogers and the Carters, their different career arcs and musical styles, and their incredible impact on American popular music. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome back to Let It Roll. Once again, I'm Nate Wilcox, and I'm joined by Ed Ward, my original co-host, and we're going to talk about Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family and the birth of modern country music. Ed, welcome back. Thanks. It's nice to be here again. Cool. And I, you know, we're we're sort of going in retrospect as you work on volume two of your history of rock and roll, but I uh, wanted to dive in a little deeper into the birth of modern country music that you cover in your first volume. And uh, we're going to talk about Jimmy Rogers and referencing Nolan Porterfield's biography from 1979 and the Carter family with a heavy reference on Will You Miss Me When I'm Gone, the Carter family and their legacy in American music by Mark Zwanzer and Charles Hirschberg. Both excellent books. There's also a couple of really good um, documentaries on the Carter family that have come out in the past few years, The Winding Stream, which talks about their relationship with uh, Johnny Cash, and also PBS last year, uh, American Epic had a had a multi-part series on the birth of uh, recording technology in the 1920s that had a half episode featuring the Carter family. So if you're trying to keep up at home, that's that's what we're bouncing off of. But Ed, the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers are both discovered by Ralph Peer of RCA Victor in 1927 in Bristol, Virginia in the same weekend. This is called yeah. the Big Bang of Country Music. How did that happen? Well, it was the what what is commonly referred to as the Bristol Sessions. He um, Peter was an independent contractor working exclusively for RCA. He wasn't a uh, an employee, and uh, 
So he was motivated to find new artists who wrote their own material by the fact that he had set up a publishing company and was able to not only profit greatly himself, but to pass some of those profits on to the performers, which gave them a great incentive to want to work with him. Now, um, his idea was to go to a place that was a central urban location surrounded by uh, folk musicians in the rural areas outside of the city. And it, it turned out that Bristol was the perfect place. It is half in Tennessee and half in Virginia. Uh, and I mean that literally because there's a, st a street called State Street that runs right down the middle of the of the state line so that on one side it's Virginia, on the other side it's uh, Tennessee. And so he, he started, he, he printed up a bunch of leaflets and did a big publicity campaign in um, the Bristol newspaper about how he was looking for old time folk musicians and um, had a call for, a, a, well, he set up for a couple of weeks uh, in an old hat factory on State Street. And um, it was really true that in the same weekend, he discovered Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family as a result. But he also discovered a bunch of other people and he already had the Stoneman family recording very successfully for him. Uh, one of the things that really brought the rush on uh, was um, when a local newspaper reporter sat in on a recording session by the Stoneman family, and it was noted that uh, Pop Stoneman had made about $2,500 in the past year uh, just in royalties from RCA. And that was an unimaginable amount of money in those days, especially for, you know, hillbillies. Yeah, that's so a whole bunch of whole bunch of people came down there and um, among them were the Carters uh, from Mesa Springs, Virginia. And the other was a, a group who well, I, I'm not sure what they were called. I mean, it, the Jimmy Rogers end of this is still a little obscure, according to Nolan Porterfield. But anyway, those were his two big discoveries. But he also discovered other people on that same weekend, including a blues singer who unaccountably showed up. Uh, Peer would also go on to record plenty of blues, uh, black blues musicians uh, with uh, Victor. And I don't know whether that royalty sharing thing was the same with them as uh, it was for the hillbillies. But anyway. What separated, I mean, you know, the Bristol sessions are frequently called the birth of modern country music. And there had been country music recorded before. Eck Roberts from Amarillo, Texas, had recorded some fiddle tracks in 1922. Fiddle and John Carson out of Atlanta. Ralph Peer actually recorded him. Had a hit with Little Log Cabin in the Lane. Mm -hmm. Good Tanner and the Skillet Lickers. You know, Vernon Dalhart had these pop hits. But what is it that's different about Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family from the country music that preceded them? Well, the country music so-called that preceded them was largely um, traditional music. You know, you, you couldn't really copyright it because everybody played it. And it wasn't until he figured out how to rearrange the traditional elements into what could be called a composed song that he could make money off of. And that was his, his real, he didn't like any of this stuff at all. And he made no bones about it 
when he was in more polite society. So what we're talking about here is not the birth of country music so much as the birth of the country music industry, which I think is a, is a, a real distinction that has to be made. He, what he did with these two artists was he found songwriting and performing machines that were highly successful as live performers, as radio broadcasters, and also as songwriters. Uh, both A.P. Carter and, and Jimmy Rogers um, were able to copyright stuff that they recorded. Uh, and in both cases, uh, a great deal of it was about the rearrangement of traditional material or pre-composed material. I mean, Wildwood Flower by the uh, Carter family has its origins probably um, in a piece of 19th century uh, sheet music. Uh, and uh, Jimmy Rogers, uh, he, he took a lot of blues stuff and made it a lot more formal. And uh, he also had songwriters working for him who he didn't compensate. His sister-in-law, for one thing. Yeah, Elsie McWilliams. Although she got some compensation, didn't she? I'm not sure. I, I was only able to read half the book. And uh, <laughs> there's there's no mention of it so far. Uh, she didn't seem to be very upset by her place in the picture. So uh, yeah, I, I, I've i finished the book, and she she um, fades a little bit. She contributed quite a bit to some sessions, and then becomes less of a presence. But she's sort of a right. parallel to um, A.P. Carter's song hunting partner Leslie Riddle, who was an African American musician who traveled around with A.P. and they would roam the hills looking for songs. How did that work? I, I'm really, I was shocked by reading that because, uh, you know, Riddle was, was, he had a real legitimate claim on, you know, co-writing and stuff. Uh, nobody was that sophisticated back then, uh, including AP. But um, I, I found it really interesting that the actual hillbillies, you know, the people who actually lived in the hills, all that incredibly complicated genealogy with, Carters and and other families intertwining up there in the in the hills in Virginia that, that they were actually completely cool with a black guy being part of the Carter family you know the, the, this vaunted racism that that country white people are supposed to have was just non-existent and and I think that might be part of the times I mean it certainly was the same with uh, Carl Perkins growing up, it was all about economics and not about the color of your skin. Uh, but anyway, Riddle knew where there were black churches where he could pick up um, sacred material. And he knew people who were sort of middle-class black who had a different, I mean, there, there was sheet music that was aimed at middle-class black and, um, black vaudeville audiences so um, that was what he probably had more access to and then ap of course had his um had the country stuff pretty well figured out so you know on a given trip i would imagine that both men did a whole bunch of scouting and and we should probably go ahead and introduce the other members of the carter family uh, sarah carter who was ap's wife and Mabel Carter, who was his sister-in-law and Sarah's cousin, 
and she was the mm-hmm. primary guitarist. Sarah was uh, the gifted lead vocalist. AP sings harmony, but only sporadically and with a really eccentric, eccentric quaver in his voice. Right. So, so he's, but he was the driving force. I mean, he was the one whose idea it was to go to Bristol. He was the one whose idea it was to have an entity called the Carter family as a commercial concern. So he's a driving right. force, but he channeled these talents that he literally found in the hills. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he was also extremely eccentric. I mean, there's talks, you know, he, he and Riddle would be driving through the country. He'd see a sawmill that had fallen apart and they'd stop the car and pack in any usable bits of this old sawmill and then take them back to Virginia with them. What? And a, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's there's some speculation in the family history that he was hit by lightning at some point and uh, right. was always a, a little bit touched. And that, you know, according to the family stories, which are really well documented, and it seems like in the 50s and 60s during the folk revival that the second and third generation Carter family members did an extensive job of documenting their parents' story because the yeah well they, they grew into they grew up in show business you know before the Bristol sessions country wasn't show business except as some sort of novelty dialect hillbilly corn liquor swilling kind of weird act yeah because show business was vaudeville which was theaters and and stage performers and you know what we would think of. Uh, variety entertainment, sort of the ancestors mm-hmm. of the Ed Sullivan show, and and country music was the sort of thing that was played in fiddling contests and private home parties, and like the Carter family did, singing on porches. So it was it was right. not out of the vaudeville commercial tradition. But then when Pierre records this stuff, and technology plays a big part um, because of his new portable lathe technology, he could take a recording studio on the road with him and this is a giant machine but right by the standards but it still fit in the back of a car yeah jimmy rogers didn't hit with his first session but his second session produced this t for texas which is an enormous hit and the carter family were an enormous hit right out the gate and that right. completely revolutionized not just country music but the recording industry itself well, the idea that you could make money with these dang hillbillies, you know, with stuff that, that the people in the executive chambers found repellent. But what didn't repel them was, of course, the money. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy Rogers in particular, um, because he was determined to be a performer from the very beginning. I sense that the Carters were reluctant, but they weren't going to say no especially as the depression got deeper and deeper they weren't going to say no to uh, making money yeah eventually they fell apart it's 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 you know from the biographies it's pretty clear rogers immediately he had been a performer scrabbling around for several years he he was diagnosed right he hadn't really figured out what he was doing but once he had the opportunity and once the focus was entirely on him he figured out what he was doing pretty quick and was uh, immediately quite a successful theater performer and did right. big time tours and made big time money. Whereas the Carter family tended to stay in the Hills 
and do small time church performances and neighborhood performances and you know got some payments they didn't get royalties for the records they got royalties for the songwriting uh right but the cash money they got from the records was nice and and, and yeah you're right it wasn't until the depression that they um disrupted their entire lives to to perform on the radio but we'll get to that in a bit um but rogers you know the the carter family classic lineup is ap singing harmonies and backups sarah carter playing auto harp and singing and maybell singing harmonies and playing lead guitar with a very distinctive guitar style that goes on to become enormously influential on generations that of actually that that's probably the uh only traditional piece of their performing that, that that black people call that church style and i'm sure it was used in church a lot people couldn't read music and not everybody could even read shape notes which was a a, a way of linking the um the notes on the page to specific pitches on the do re mi you know um solfege uh model so what you would do would be to line out the melody of the hymn with the bass, the bass strings of the guitar. And then, you know, you'd play through the hymn once and then the congregation would uh, sing the words. I mean, if they were really folky, there would have been a fiddle involved in there somewhere. Yeah. And, and there seems to have been an aspect of the fiddle. It's interesting to me that both Rogers and Carter basically eschew the fiddle. There's a few Jimmy Rogers recordings with fiddle on it because he tried so many different backup instruments in his career. But, you know, country music up to that point with fiddle and John Carson and Gid Tanner had been heavily, and Eck Roberts uh, all the way back to the beginning, had been heavily based on fiddle reels and dance music. And the Carter family was more parlor singing and church music. And Rogers is more blues, frankly. I mean, he's right. Well, he is sort of on the darker side of popular music. In other words, he's very clearly a white man. Um, I don't want to say imitating or co-opting, but grabbing onto bits of the current black show business to the point where he actually recorded with, um, with Louis Armstrong, which is something I hadn't remembered. Well, yeah. I had actually, I, I've got a, I've got a copy of the recording and it's, it's kind of oil and water, but it's interesting that, you know, he was willing to do that. Yeah. It, it, it seems like Jimmy Rogers didn't see a musical color line. He was also fascinated with Hawaiian music and, and one of his backing bands featured a Hawaiian steel guitarist, which is how right. steel guitar uh, becomes part of the country music tradition, and then the yodel that was his trademark. Uh, you know, I just I just read Nick Tosh's book on Emmett Miller, who was a blackface minstrel performer, a vaudeville performer, who recorded around the same time and has a very similar yodel, um, and was the influence. You know, he did, recorded the version of Lovesick Blues that that Hank Williams based his career making 1949 record on, and both Emmett Miller and Rogers were around Asheville, North Carolina at the same time. And there's some discussion as to, you know, who, who got whose yodel and, and, or if they had a common source of the yodel, but that's kind of right. lost and, in the and, 
because it's it's not really a part of, of any American folk tradition that I can think of. Yodeling of that virtuosic sort is, is sort of, I think it's Austrian in origin. Uh, it's certainly not the Swiss style of yodeling because that has that that is based around long drawn out notes, and so uh, the, the yodeli 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 kind of stuff. That that comes from somewhere else. That comes from a, a refined folk tradition um, that also is a part of show business, uh, probably as I say, probably Austrian in origin. So I, you know, who knows where he pulled it out of? He 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 had good ears. That was very very uh, obvious from his entire career. Good ears and bad lungs. <laughs> yeah, and tuberculosis. Uh was his undoing he was diagnosed in 1924 and had to quit the railroad tracks scrabbled around for several years trying to make it as an entertainer and then once he makes it as an entertainer i mean reading porterfield's book it's pretty harrowing i mean the, the man is is frail and feverish most of the time and yet he's mm-hmm. pursuing a pretty relentless live performance schedule and recording every chance he gets frequently with a stretcher set up in the studio. Right. So he can lie down between takes. Yeah. And, uh, it's, um, he's sort of, he's, you know, the consumptive romantic performer Chopin being the, uh, the sort of definitive one in the European tradition, that's a 19th century, uh, trope, you know, the doomed romantic genius. And Jimmy Rogers is like the, the only one, uh, of that kind in American 20th century music that I'm aware of that was struck down with TB, you know, that that's part of his legend. And he wrote songs like the yeah. TB blues and, and others, which, um, you know, gives him this, he, he was a little older than the 27 club. I think he was 33 when he died, but it gives him a very similar aura to, to later wastrels like Hank Williams or Brian Jones or Jimi Hendrix that, that are, you know, Amy Winehouse all the way up to the 21st century. Mm-hmm. But um, the Carter family didn't have any of that. They, their cross was, I guess, you know, I've seen them compared to Fleetwood Mac, was the romantic interplay within the band because AP and Sarah's marriage broke apart. Right. But the act didn't. Yeah. And they, and they go on. She has this affair with AP's cousin uh, and the marriage sort of breaks up, but then... They go move to Mexico as a family to Del Rio, Texas, actually, and record in Ciudad mm-hmm. Acuna across the border, and spend several years in the late thirties recording. Um, what is it? XERA, the giant uh, illegal radio station. You know, it was blasting out. Well, it wasn't illegal in Mexico, and that's where the yeah. transmitter was. <laughs> and they could reach virtually the North Pole with these broadcasts yeah. selling. Yeah, Bob Dylan used to hear that that station. In in Hibbing, Minnesota. Yeah, and so that, you know, their record sales. I mean, and the thing about both Carter and Rogers, the Carter family and Rogers, is from 1927 to what about 1929, record sales are healthy and booming. But then when the depression right. hits, it it just goes from a stream to a trickle. And but and yet, I believe that it could a case could be made. That the Carters and Jimmy Rogers helped keep Victor afloat. Yeah, I think you're right. And and uh, the uh, PBS 
series American Epic, their thesis is that radio was cutting into middle class record sales, that the middle class had discovered radio and had stopped buying uh, you know, the Enrico Caruso records or jazz records or things that they'd been buying before that, and that the record companies sought out both hillbilly music and race music in a desperate bid to find people who didn't have radios yet who might buy records. Yeah, but on the other hand, radios were getting cheaper and you could get an unlimited quantity of whatever they were playing for free. The bad news was they weren't playing hillbilly or race music at all. So you'd have to tune into something like XCRA in order to hear the Carter family. And if you wanted to hear blues music, you better have, you know, a black honky tonk in your town. Or by the 78s. Right. And, 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 and that it kept him going, but, but Jimmy, you know, burns out with the TB and is dead, um, by 1934, whereas the Carter family are dropped by RCA Victor, and, and they, they have various record deals throughout it, but it's not until 1939 that they go down to Mexico and do XERA. So I'm very curious uh, as to what you think as to whether the majority of their audience was from record sales or from that later radio exposure. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that that there was a growing audience for radio, and there was a declining ability to purchase uh, records. And so what they did on the radio was continue what you might call the Carter family brand. So when AP finally went nuts and opened up a store and, and just became a recluse, the women decided they were the Carter family their daughters were growing up in show business. I mean, you know, the, the girls were with them the whole time. And they thought that what mommy did was, you know, a, a job. And so when they were asked to be on stage, they did it. You know, I, I mean, even the one, I can't remember which one it was that couldn't sing. June. And she June turned Carter it, couldn't sing, yeah. She could, but the, one of the others was designated the comedian. That was June. June played... was June was the comedian and and the the really? poorest singer. Yeah, but she learned to huh. sing. But uh, you yeah. know, Annetta and uh, the other sister were more natural singers. Um, but yeah, uh, and that was Maybell's daughters. Sarah left. Finally, you know, there's the dramatic tale of Sarah dedicating. I think it was tonight. I'm thinking of my blue eyes to AP's cousin who was far away in California, you know, they'd had their brief right. thing and then she'd gone back to AP and, and stayed, you know, kept her family together. But then one night on the radio, she dedicates a song to her lost love and he drives out from California and takes her back to California. She left her family. She left the, the, the music business. She left AP and then Maybell and AP's brother, both AP and his brother are nicknamed Doc, which I find mostly confusing. But Doc Carter and Maybell then take their daughters and start touring and become bedrocks of the Nashville country music industry. I mean, they, they brought Chad right, they, they, down. Right, and they were weekly on the Grand Ole Opry. For years and years. And so, right. and, and, you know, May, Mother Maybell you know, earned her name. She wasn't just the mother of, of her daughters, but for wondering 
you know, minstrels like Johnny Cash or Hank Williams, she was literally a lifesaver. And, and eventually cast right. Hank Williams out, couldn't put up with his craziness. But she did save Johnny Car- Johnny Cash, and, and he eventually marries June Carter. And so, you know, so it's sort of fascinating to me because the, the Carter sisters, maybe on the Carter sisters, can't really hold a candle to the original Carter family in terms of musical greatness. I mean, they're not great performers. Um, right, or great songwriters. No, but they were, you know, mainstays of, of Nashville country music, and they were solid entertainers, and backstage they're an even bigger factor. But it's really the folk revival comes along in the late 50s and 60s, and Sarah comes back into performance for that. And so that's sort of a third wave, or I guess a fourth wave of, of Carter family popularity. What... What do you, what's your take on that role in their legacy of that era of their history? Well, the, one of the things that, that brought them back to life was the Harry Smith anthology, where there were several uh, Carter family tunes uh, included on those first three volumes of, of the uh, that were issued at the time and became sort of the Bible of folk music although almost none of the recordings that were included on it were authentic folk music. They were country and blues show business stuff. That's not entirely, but that they got this audience by accident. And this is when people like Mike Seeger began to think, Hmm, this is all connected to fiddle tunes and banjo tunes. And yet it's something else but it's a legacy that's worth preserving. And so, you know, he and, and uh, I, I, I know for certain he did, and, and perhaps Ralph Rinsler was also, you know, the, these people who are performers, but also dedicated folklorists in a, in a sort of non-academic sense. They weren't publishing papers, but they were accumulating tape recordings of interviews, long hours of tape recordings, um, and donating them to things like the, the Smithsonian Institution. So uh, that that was, you know, the, and and it was weird because from a strict folky viewpoint, what the Carters were doing was commercial. Certainly, anybody who sang a Jimmy Rogers song was ignored by the folkies because that that was commercial music too. Yeah, and I mean that was that's to be disdained. That's one thing I I've sort of been fascinated with you know why did harry smith consider the carter family folk music and put it on the anthology but no jimmy rogers well because harry smith was more into getting mo ash to buy his record collection to get a little spending cash (laughs) and he knew that mo's label was called folkways right so these are old tunes that you know have lived down through the ages and that's folk music, okay, Mo? Write me a check. <laughs> I see. So, and, you know, and, and the kids, you know, that came out in, in 52, I believe. And, and all, all these young kids, like the, like um, Mike and Peggy Seeger and Dave Van Rock and, and you know, the, the soon-to-be kingpins of the uh, third American folk wave, they didn't know any better. I mean, really, this stuff was under-researched. Who cares what some, you know, Negro on a plantation was singing in 1927? 
It really was of no interest to academia. Until the the 50s folk revival. And Mike Seeger actually uh, goes and, and finds Leslie Riddle and brings him out onto the folk circuit. Right. A- and John Cohen, another member of his band, the New Lost City Ramblers, uh, did a great amount of documentation. Cohen, besides being a talented multi-instrumentalist, uh, is also a, an astonishing photographer. He has he has photographs of Appalachia back in the fifties, um, where here you know the way people were living back then, people who were completely ignored by mainstream uh, politics and and uh, social to the extent that there was a social net, um, they were just completely ignored. Stupid old hillbillies. And it seems to me that sort of the the distinction between the folk and the countryside of the Carter's legacy is that Mother Maybell and the Carter sisters were on the Grand Ole Opry and on the various TV shows and on the various circuit country circuit tours. But when Mother Maybell performed on the folk circuit, it would be with Sarah frequently and without mm-hmm. her daughters. And so it was the original Carter family was folk. Uh, and then Mother Maybell and the Carter sisters are country. And, and they were folk because they, they were they were labeled as such. Yeah, you know, and, Wildwood Flower was not a folk song. I keep, and this is the thing that I open open my book with is the idea that if you're just playing on the porch for your neighbors and nobody ever hears you beyond pretty much that circle, that's pure folk music. It doesn't matter whether what you're singing is ballads that have been passed down through the ages through, you know, that originated in, in the North of England uh, and were collected by Cecil Sharp in the 19th century, or whether they were parlor ballads that were published as sheet music in 1896. It was folk music. And the same would go for, you know, a garage band that never made any records. That's folk music. But once you get out into into the commercial world, it, it's not. It, it's a means of making a living. And Jimmy Rogers, his music, I mean, is probably more authentically folk than the Carter family in that he's basically taking blues lyrics and mixing and matching them. And um, and, and, and also a certain amount of country content with, with sentimental, you know, I, I'm pining for mother and daddy and home. You know, yeah, all that kind of stuff. You know, both the Carters and Rogers are recording superstars, but Rogers has this big live career, you know, theater. He toured with Will, Ro- Will Rogers, who was probably the most famous right. man on earth at the time, and, uh, you know, played big theater circuits, tent shows, everything was out and about, and then becomes an enormous influence on the next generation of country stars. Like Ernest Tubb was an absolute. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Rogers fanatic and had he not Gene Gene Autry was was a flat out imitator yes absolutely and so Rogers is taken up by this nascent country music industry and then is this martyr of you know the same industry um, in a way that the original Carter family was not and so you know I guess Rogers was just seen as country uh, by future generations of folkies and and not taken up, but um, you know, if you listen to his music, it's this incredible melange of of country and blues, and Hawaiian music, huh. and 
Yeah, pop. Not, and, not so much. I don't think he, he was so much Hawaiian music as, as he used that as a spice to make his stuff sound distinct and different. Yeah, his arrangement. And it's interesting to me that Ralph Peer's work as an A&R man, or what would later be called an A&R man, with the Carter family, he just basically was like, do you have some new songs, AP? And, and the lineup right. was set. Turn on was, the machine and, and sit them down. Yeah, it was much more like the Beatles. It was a self-contained group. Whereas with Jimmy Rogers, Ralph Peer is constantly messing with the formula and always after Rogers to line up new bands. And frequently he brought in musicians, session musicians, to play right. with Rogers. Well, that, that, so, first, that first session with the Hawaiian guitar was, you know, sort of random. But it, it worked so well. Yeah, and, and they brought it back. And so I think one thing that's sort of difficult for people, you know, of Baby Boom and beyond who've grown up on artists like Dylan and the Beatles where, where there's this creative progression and you expect the artist to, you know, have sort of artistic phases like Picasso or something. With Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family, it's more like the artist formulated a style and then explored within that style, but there was no expectation of artistic growth. No. You wanted the next record to be just like the last one, but a little different. Yeah, with the caveat. And so, you know, listening to their collected works, um, because of the different arrangement styles that Jimmy Rogers had, and also because of his different songwriting partners, um, and then his stuff is more varied, I don't know. Personally, I'm a Carter family. I, I love Jimmy Rogers, but, but the Carter family is just absolutely one of my favorites. And I think it's because of Sarah's voice. And Sarah Carter just had this incredible voice. And, and their, their canon is basically, you know, set in the first few sessions. And after 1934, they only record a handful of new songs after they leave RCA Victor, um, even though they're right. double, about double their recording, you know, volume of songs they recorded. So I think that's one thing that, that modern listeners should keep in mind is that these were not self-conscious artists. These were entertainers. Right. They were professionals. And, and uh, you know, just cranking it out and, and not, right. not having any pretense of art, art. Although they did, you know, I think it's interesting that um, of the few songs that the Carter family is believed to have written, like Leslie Riddle is probably credited with having originally composed Hello Stranger and uh, Bear Creek Blues and a few other Carter family songs. But the Carter family, AP and Sarah, probably wrote most of May the Circle Be Unbroken, which is their most famous song. Mm -hmm. And a very personal song. So there was some definite artistic expression. And you can't hear Sarah singing um, Married Girl, Single Girl without realizing, I mean, this is a woman singing her life story. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it's... It's art on a very personal level, which is was a novelty back then. You you expected that a performer was wearing a mask, that they weren't actually singing their reality. And it wasn't until Hank Williams that that became the central part of his art. I mean, the Carter family, the, songs like that are individual. They're 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 not part of the main program. But when, but when they did cut loose with stuff like that, it was it was very very popular, sold very well, 
because people identified with it. Nobody was really analyzing all this stuff back then. All they wanted to do was make money. And very quickly, I mean, I, I was interested that somebody told, and it may have been Ralph Peer, told Jimmy Rogers, look, kid, the average life of a popular performer is three years. Yeah, that's, that's all. We're, we're making money off of you, and that's all we can look forward to, really, because the public is fickle and the public gets tired. And it turned out not to be the case for Rogers. Um, this was a new era, and the media, of course, uh, the, the um, advent of the radio played, played into this. Yeah, although you still hear the three-year thing. I mean, you know, some some people talk about the Beatles as having two, three-year careers of superstardom, or you know, Madonna having a couple of three-year periods of of being a big star before the public tired. So that's not entirely untrue, but still, uh, and and I think Rogers also with his songs about TB, actually the whole Blue Yodel series with you know the T for Tennessee T for Thelma, the girl that made a mess out of me. I mean, the fans immediately sensed that there was a story to Jimmy Rogers and, mm-hmm. and a myth, a myth there. And so in a way, he's a precursor to Hank Williams and, and that he's singing about but, his own death. He, he, he wasn't really um, candid about it. I mean, there was no, there was no media, no, no fan magazines to exploit that kind of thing. You know, the, the way Rolling Stone would go out and report intimate details uh, and opinions by a performer that, you know, that was unheard of movie stars. That was a different thing. Their, their fan press was very much about that, even if most of it was made up, but really music people. Well, a lot of the music, especially country music, those people didn't read a lot of those details were, you know, held back or, rumored you know or nobody knew for sure and yeah. to a certain extent that 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 kind of mystique i think has always been very healthy for a performer who cares what you had for breakfast i like that song yeah and and uh, yeah and you didn't have to worry about me too moments or that kind of stuff i mean there was no uh worries about their personal life coming back to haunt their performance but one last thing i want to touch on is is the uh, folk revival and the Carter family's interaction with it, it kind of comes to a peak or an end with Mother Maybell's participation in the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band's Will the Circle Be Unbroken album, which is this... That, that's tr- pretty much the end of, of, of that stage of folk music anyway. Yeah, and it's the beginning um, of country rock. I mean, you'd have country rock mm, recorded before, but that's what made it popular. Um, with the rock audience, was that nitty gritty dirt? I'm I'm not certain. I agree with that, but um, well, I mean, Grant I'm, Parsons I'm never sold millions of records. You know, I mean, no, and, he and, didn't. But but the precursors to the Eagles did. Well, the nitty gritty dirt band, I think, is the big precursor. I mean, that and and it had. I mean, that thing sold millions and millions of copies. It introduced Doc Watson. Uh, no, there'd already been the Birds. Yeah, but that didn't sell. You know, their country face didn't sell millions of records. I mean, they just didn't. The the I think I think the and it also didn't have, like you know, the birds like Graham Parson notoriously tried to get Merle Haggard to produce a record by him, and Merle Haggard told him to screw off. You know, he wouldn't have anything to do with the long hairs. But the nitty gritty dirt band 
was able to get the blessing. You know, I, th- I don't know how big a part of Maybell Carter being in it, but you know, you had Earl Scruggs and Merle Travis and Jimmy Martin and Norman Blake. Uh, and Doc oh, Watson. Well, Norman and Blake was well. was younger and he was actually a folkie. But there were a number of folkies who made their way to Nashville because their virtuosity was such that they were more interested in in getting involved with traditional country music. You know, I mean, uh, Bill Monroe was one of the big conduits there. Doc Watson, who who lived in both worlds. Yeah, and he's a big part of the the Will the Circle Be Unbroken album. And I mean, I'm not like hellbent on saying that that was the only thing that brought country into the rock audience, but it was a big. No, it, it it was it was growing, and it happened to be the first big seller of that. Although I'm not sure that the Eagles' first album. I, I I'm not sure on my chronology here. Yeah, um, the Eagles are coming out right around this time but i don't think yeah. that big still i think they're six months to a year behind as far as being um well they, they weren't immediately popular but they the forces behind them were everybody in the troubadour bar which is something i talk about a lot in volume two uh, the troubadour bar was this fluid place where it was you know sort of the meeting place for country rock the, that and lucy's el adobe which was a cheap Mexican restaurant across the street from the Paramount Studios. They, that's where stuff got done. And now you're teasing us with tidbits from Volume 2, which we're going to have to wait for probably the third season of this podcast to dive into, but um, I'm very excited <laughs> to do that. <laughs> well, that's what, I, what I'm doing right now is, is uh, polishing up what I've, uh, what I've got and uh, – trying to get the chronology it is enormously complicated as is the entire story we're lucky to be talking about jimmy rogers and the carter family because things were so much simpler then (laughs) simple days indeed well thank you ed that wraps up our episode on jimmy rogers and the carter family and the birth of modern country music hopefully we'll be back with a similar parallel episode on the prehistory or the early history of modern african-american music I hope you'll join yeah, me for that. There's, there's still lots to talk about. <laughs> awesome. So that's uh, it for this episode of Let It Roll, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Next week, Ed and I will return to the prehistory of rock and roll with a look at the transformation of African-American pop music in the 1930s and 40s from swing to rhythm and blues. Be sure and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com to access the YouTube playlists and hear the music we're talking about. If you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more about the history of rock and roll, buy Ed's book, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1, 1920-1963, published by Flatiron Books, available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and anywhere fine books are sold. Okay.